Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Today, we've got two books about the weird and thrilling and gripping world of classical music. Now, I'm not trying to be funny when I say that either. In a minute, we'll hear from a violinist, Jessica Chiquetto Hindman, who somehow found herself playing in an orchestra that did a whole tour of fake performances to an unknowing audience. But first, Brendan Slocum has written a mystery thriller set in the world of classical music. His protagonist, Ray, is a black man playing violin. And he's dealing with all of the issues that that scenario offers when his rare and expensive violin is stolen. And Slocum tells NPR's Asma Khalid that this is more than just a story of a black man navigating racism in a stuffy, uptight subculture. But it's about the deeper question of who gets to make a career playing music. Brendan Slocum remembers that moment that classical music just clicked for him. The first piece of classical music that I heard was Mozart Symphony Number no. 40. My music teacher, Miss Holmes, when I was in third grade, she said, you can always tell it's Mozart by this little song. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's a Mozart. And for some reason that just stuck with me and I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. I was like, what is going on? What, what kind of music is this? This is totally new. And I just, I fell in love with it that day. The next piece he fell for was Dvorak's string quartet, number 12, known as the American Quartet. I said, one day I'm going to play that. You know, I hardly knew how to hold my violin at that point when I heard it. But absolutely, I, I, that, was, that was a goal. Today, Brendan Slocum has made a career out of playing and teaching the violin, kind of like the protagonist of his new novel, Ray McMillan, who's about to perform in the international Tchaikovsky competition when his precious Stradivarius violin is stolen. But as a black man in classical music, a missing instrument is not Ray's only problem. The book is called The Violin Conspiracy, and I asked author Brendan Slocum how much of his own life is reflected in Ray's character. A lot of what Ray experiences are my own experiences, some of it modified, but for the most part, it's uh, basically the story of my life, mm. minus the Tchaikovsky competition. So you did not compete in the Tchaikovsky competition? Oh, uh, no, 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 no. Actually, had had someone gotten a hold of me when I was seven or eight years old, I probably would have been able to be at that level. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, the scene where Ray is... Uh, <laughs> performing in front of a convocation of his college classmates, and he completely bombs a piece, the Kabalevsky Violin Concerto. Totally bombs it. And he wants to quit. And he wants to give up. That was me. And then the comeback he had after a great lesson with his teacher, he came and played Shardas by Monty. just blew everybody away. That was totally me. That, that was, was what yeah, that was me and I was like, "Oh yeah, this is going in the book." So for example, though, there are, there are some scenes that that are really tough, I think, to just deal with for young Ray. I mean, there's a scene that I remember he's it's the first wedding that he's played at and the white father of the bride, you know, not only doubts his ability to execute classical music, 
but also tries to kick him out of the venue. Where's that from? Did that happen to you? <laughs> a, a modified version of that actually happened. Uh, the quartet that I was playing in, we were playing at a wedding, and the father of the bride was not very happy to see uh, certain members of my quartet. And just the look in his eyes, it, it was, it was, I mean, it was something I will never forget. I'd never seen pure hatred before until that day. So, Brendan, let's talk about the book. Um, you know, Ray, in your story, faces a lot of pressure from his own family to quit mm-hmm. playing the violin. His mom would prefer that he work at Popeye's, where he could, you know, get a steady paycheck. And it seems like you're commenting a bit throughout the book on privilege and who gets to make a career out of music. Talk to us about that. Well, um, in classical music, it's a really sad statistic, but uh, 1.8% of classical musicians are Black. And that number to me is staggering. And I I don't understand why being a a Black classical musician, you know, it's certainly not because we are, are incapable you know, I've, I've played in major symphony orchestras. I've played under, you know, famous conductors and, you know, I can do the repertoire and it never made sense to me why we were not included in these, uh, you know, major symphonies and everything. And as I'm looking, okay, well, the last concert I played in there, there were not very many black faces on the stage, nor were there very many black faces in the audience. Mm. And what struck me was why is that? I think it's probably because we just have this, people have this impression that it's not for you and they just steer you away from it. They think that they're doing you a favor by steering you towards something that they think that you'll like, you should be playing jazz. You know, you should be listening to this Mm -hmm. type of music. This, this is not for you. You probably won't do well, or you probably won't like, this. And that's something that really needs to change. And I really wanted to bring awareness um, to, to people that, you know, we Black musicians are just like everyone else. So in the novel, it seems like it's not just the pressure of white or Black people who are threatening Ray's career. He is at one point sued by his own family, while he is also facing a legal claim from the descendants of the slave owners who owned his ancestors, who say (laughs) the violin is actually rightfully theirs. Am I right in noticing that Ray seems to be being hit pretty much from every direction? Every direction you can name, Ray gets hit. He does. And that's part of what I really wanted to write in his character was his uh, resilience. And, you know, he he got that resilience. It didn't come overnight. He actually had to work very hard. And he fortunately had a few people in his life that were really, really encouraging to him. The main uh, person that, that Ray looked up to was his grandma, Nora. Uh-huh. And uh, she just, the woman was, she's actually modeled after my own grandma, Nora, just the sweetest woman you've ever seen in your life. And she loves him to death and he loves her. And she has nothing to say, but encouraged, encouraging words for him. Um, she believes in him because he, she sees that he doesn't quite believe in himself. So she actually does believe in him and she gives him confidence yeah. and she gives him the, uh, I mean, she gave know, him this violin. Right? Absolutely. I, I think, I think in grandma Nora's head, she knew what she was doing. She, she knew that she was setting him up for success. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to give away who actually stole the violin, but I did notice you're already working on a second book, which struck me because, I mean, you you are a musician. You know, you've mm-hmm. performed, you've taught for decades. Um, so what got you to start writing fiction? Um, I don't know if I'd call it a career change, but like it does feel like a bit of a career pivot, right? I I think it's fair to say that it's a career change. I mean, I'm uh-huh. still teaching, but it's it's definitely something new for me and I'm really enjoying it. 
Uh, the summer of 2020 basically did it. You know, when you're stuck inside all day, <laughs> all day long, all day long, and yeah. it's either write or eat. And I decided, yeah, I'm getting fat, so I should probably try my hand <laughs> at writing. And I, I tried writing something. I, I sent it off, and the um, agency that I sent it to, of course, it was rejected. But the agent said, you know what? You've got a pretty good voice. You should try writing something that that you know about. I was like, all right. So I know music. Uh-huh. Why not write my own story? That's Brendan Slocum, author of The Violin Conspiracy. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. There's a mystery at the core of this next book, too. It just never gets solved. Jessica Chiquetto Hindman's memoir, Sounds Like Titanic, tells the story of being in an orchestra where the composer has faked everything. But throughout the book, she only refers to him as the composer, and she never reveals his identity. Because, as she tells Empire Scott Simon, it's not about him, but about what the charade of the musician-audience relationship says about us. Jessica Chiquetto Heinemann has written a memoir about playing the violin for an orchestra that tours and performs, but is never really heard, led by a man she calls the composer, who's really more of a musical charlatan, to play before audiences that don't seem to know but love the orchestra they see and the music they hear, whatever it is. And it all makes Jessica Chiquetto Heinemann question who we are. Sounds like Titanic is her memoir. She's been a professional violinist and is now a professor of creative writing at Northern Kentucky University. Jessica Chiquetto Heinemann joins us from just across the Ohio River at Cincinnati Public Radio. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Let me get you to explain this because I, I don't want to miss a note, so to speak. <laughs> you were in an orchestra that played music on tour 2002 to 2006, but the music you played was not what the audience heard. That's right. Um, I am a pretty good amateur high school violinist, but when I performed for this orchestra, the microphone in front of me was off, and a CD recording of a much more talented violinist was being blasted towards unsuspecting audiences. Sounds like Titanic because the music sounded like... Titanic. <laughs> yes. Like the theme from the film, Titanic, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. The 1997 film, yes. But it wasn't that music. Yes, I think a few notes shy of whatever copyright infringement that would be. And you identify this person always as a composer. And I guarantee you, I have been all over the web trying to figure out who this is, <laughs> as I'm sure any reader would, because this you, you guys performed a series of concerts for PBS over the years. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So why why do you keep it as just the composer in this memoir? You know, I th- I, it took me many years to write this book. And um, as I was writing, I really realized that this was not an expose. It's not a work of investigative journalism. Um, it's really meant to be a work of literature. And while I write a lot about the composer and music and these performances, all of that is is really scaffolding to launch bigger questions for me in terms of um, class and gender and geography, um, the college tuition crisis for people my age. And so once I started realizing that the book was much bigger than one mm-hmm. goofy guy and his goofy orchestra and one goofy job, I decided that, um, you know, it really wasn't the point to, to out him, um, I hope that no one does. I'm, you know, I understand if if people want to, but it's my hope that the bigger themes of the book will shine through. Can I get you to talk about, well, and you certainly do in the book, the emotional challenges that you were living through at this time? 
Sure. So uh, at some point during our tour, the main tour that kind of comprises a lot of the book, in the book it's called the God Bless America Tour, I began to have panic attacks. And at first, I thought that they were just stage fright, um, but they escalated to the point where they became debilitating. And after the tour, I had to move home with my parents for um, over six months. And there was a parallel between losing my own grip on reality, what was real, what's not real, um, and the parallel between um, audiences who were not able to tell the difference between real music and fake music, and how even further I was felt like I was increasingly living in a society that was no longer able to tell real from fake. This was during the very beginning of the Iraq War, um, the years immediately following 9-11, uh, the rise of reality television. It just seemed like that barrier was starting to break down. Are you trying to politicize your personal crisis? Um, and, and, and therefore, if I might <laughs> say, not really wrestling with it as a personal crisis. Um, well, I, I think I do have to, to wrestle with it as a personal crisis. I did have to wrestle with it. I had to just um, do what people do when they're kind of debilitated by panic attacks, which is figure out how to make them stop or at least somewhat oh, subside. No, I, I know so you they, re deal with oh, it in a, in a personal way, but it sounds like you're blaming, you know, George Bush for your problems. Yeah. <laughs> well, in some ways, I felt, um, at that time at least, that my problems were caused by George Bush. Um, so, I mean, another thread of this book is that you know, once I realized I wasn't going to cut it as a music major, I switched my major to Middle Eastern Studies. And I took that very seriously. Um, it was my plan to try to become a reporter in the Middle East. And I started to begin to learn Arabic. I spent years studying um, Islamic literature and art and religion. And I left to go do my study abroad in Cairo, Egypt. And of course, we started out that time just study abroad students do, learning the new currency, people in Egypt. And then two weeks in, 9-11 happened. And um, it completely changed, obviously, the course of everything. And mm -hmm. a lot of Americans fled the Middle East at that point. You couldn't go back to the States because the airports were closed. But I stayed along with a small group of other American students. And I really thought that this was going to be um, so crucial to me and being a bridge of understanding between our country and that region. Of course, after I graduated, um, it was almost impossible to find any job that used those skills. Um, it seemed to me that our country didn't want that expertise. They didn't want to know anything real about what was going on in Iraq. Um, you know, it was a, I'm sure you remember a really, really difficult time um, when it was really hard to determine what was true and what was not. And so I really started to hear, you know, what was not hard was getting this job as a fake violinist for this orchestra yeah. playing music about a disaster. Um, so I started to see those things as connected, that we had never really dealt with the national trauma of 9-11, that people were looking for music that reminded them of another previous disaster, music that they found was soothing in some way. Mm. Did you feel this um, this orchestra of which you were a part was an oddity or a scam? That's a great question. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of like if scam is the right word. It's certainly artifice. When people go to a live performance of an orchestra, you hear violin music and you see a violinist playing in front of you. You assume that those two are related phenomena, right? At the same time, People went away from those concerts loving the music, and music yeah. is all about listening at the end of the day. Um, and they, they would even would, become teary and come up to the composer. Right? Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, they came and relaxed and loved that music, and to his credit, 
he would stay for hours after these concerts talking to every single audience member, um, talking to children, to people who were ill. In some ways, that made him a lot more approachable than some of the other figures in the classical music world, right, who are um, a little bit harder to assess. You still play the violin? I do occasionally, uh, not as much as I used to, but um, every once in a while, someone who is desperate for a wedding violinist will uh, call me up. <laughs> so so this is you and not some CD, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> I did not um, get a recording of a better NPR guest uh, and play it in, in the studio. <laughs> oh, you're a pretty good one, so. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Jessica chiquetto Heinman, her memoir... Sounds like Titanic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookofthedaday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. The podcast is produced by Kelly Wessinger and edited by Megan Sullivan and Taylor Burney. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Monica Evstatieva, Samantha Balban, Robin Young, Melissa Gray, Gabe O'Connor, Amy Isaacson, Gustavo Contreras, Patrick Jarwatinon, Sophia Boyd, and Ed McNulty. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.